Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello and welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And we have gotten together today to discuss a wonderful poem, as we always do. Uh, The poem is Beckoned by Forrest Gander. Woo-woo! Woo-woo! The name Forrest Gander is probably familiar to you if you are a poetry aficionado. Um, (laughs) You're not an aficionado. That's okay. Yeah, that's fine, too. We... (laughs) You don't got to be an aficionado. <laughs> you could just be a fish. <laughs> yes. But, fewer, uh, fewer fish than aficionados have heard of Forrest Gander. This has been studied. I dare say fewer fish listen to this podcast than uh, aficionados. But That's true. So poetry aficionado or otherwise, uh, Gander is yeah pretty well known. Uh, most likely... You would have heard of him because in 2018, he won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. Uh, Pretty big deal for the collection Be With. Um, But that's not all. Gander's been around for quite a while, doing a lot of pretty cool poetry stuff. And in that time has also won, uh, you know, has been a Guggenheim Fellow, an EA Fellowship, just a lot of different awards and prizes and fellowships. And in addition to writing poetry, also has done a lot of translation work and essays, um, probably most notably has done a bunch of translations of Naruda and also uh, did a collection mouth to mouth poems by 12 contemporary Mexican women, which was back in the 90s, I believe that came out. So a lot of different kinds of poetic work for a very long time. Uh, also, I was very excited when I came across this. Uh, doing some background for this episode a book called red start and ecological poetics that was done in collaboration with an australian poet ah, hi <laughs> the land for, uh, is everywhere for new new listeners to close talking jack is a man of um 
many and deep investments in uh, assorted topics. Some are longstanding, like Bruce Springsteen. Others are more recent and one... (laughs) The continent, the cultures, and the people of Australia has concerned my fellow co-hosts, Jack Rossiter Munley, for... Well, it seems like it's been a solid year at this point, maybe. I don't Pretty know. much, yeah. Yeah, it's okay. about a year. I don't know. It's just <laughs> the thing. I, it's not even like I'm consumed by a need to go there as soon as possible. I'd like to go sometime, <laughs> but it's just like, wow, Australia's everywhere. So yeah, Red Start and Ecological Poetics. Um, part of that is because Gander also has a background in geology. So you know, it'll come up in our discussion of this poem, but also generally in his work, there's a lot of kind of natural world geology stuff that crosses over. Um, and I'm, I'm interested, I have not had a chance to read anything from that book yet, but it sounds like a really interesting melding of sort of science and poetry and thinking about poetry in the context of ecology and obviously you know, climate change and climate crisis. So a convergence of many different interests, uh, which I know you also share. So I'll be sure to report back. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, that sounds great. He also was married to another very legendary poet, C.D. Wright, who passed away um, a few years ago. And then this book kind of revolves around Be With. Um, the loss of of his partner yes and the the title for this book comes from the dedication of the posthumous book of rights that came out that's where the the title be with comes from yes uh, and obviously like a lot of what the book is dealing with is that loss and grief and i think that you will hear that in this poem this is beckoned by forrest gander At which point my grief sounds ricocheted outside of language. Something like a drifting swarm of bees. At which point in the tetric silence that followed, I was swarmed by those bees and lost consciousness. At which point there was no way out for me either. At which point I carried on in a semi-coma, dreaming I was awake avoiding friends and puking, plucking stingers from my face and arms, at which point her voice was pinned to a backdrop of vaporous color, at which point the crane's bustles flared, at which point coming to, I knew I'd pay the whole flagpole fare, at which point the driver turned and said, it doesn't need to be your fault for it to break you, at which point, without any lurching commencement, he began to play a vulture bone flute. At which point I grew old, and it was like ripping open the beehive with my hands again. At which point I conceived a realm more real than life. At which point there was at least some possibility, some possibility, in which I didn't believe, of being with her once more. And that's the poem beckoned. Yes. It's a beautiful one. Very beautiful. Very intense. Yeah. As you noted, this collection, uh, and obviously this poem is dealing with the unexpected loss of Gander's partner. Uh, 
I think that's most of the narrative going on in this, that there, that's, that's kind of what's happening in this poem. Obviously there's a lot of indications of progression through time at which point, at which point, at which point the, the repeated phrase indicates that you're kind of like, and then this happened and then this happened, but it's fragmented. It's separated by indefinite amounts of time. Yeah, a lot of places to start, but maybe we'll just start with the, I think probably what sticks out most, which is the at which points, the kind of the anaphora. Ah. <laughs> nice. Ah. Yeah, it's a poetry word. Uh, I don't know, yeah, how, how did that strike you as, as something going on in this poem? Yeah, um, no, that it's definitely like the kind of... Um, yeah, yeah, one of the most sort of clear choices in the in the poem, and it 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 structures a lot of it. So on the one hand, I think you're right that it it's kind of like there's you get the sense that you know, like the image that came to my mind when I was reading this poem. It's not not like in general, but like I was sort of thinking about the the emotional state of grief that is kind of being captured here um, of like, like a kind of um, like, I feel like in, in movies and shows, there's, there's like some, some like bad thing happens. And then the like main character is like walking through life sort of like in a, a numb dream state. And you kind of like, uh like it's often like a montage and that they're kind of just like doing the thing like in a rote way basically um and there's <clears throat> there's a lot of different elements but to me the at which points it's like we're in like like grief montage time where it's just like the like time in terms of what you're doing in your life is not what's actually like structuring you. It's just, it's, it's, it's the, the, the world of the grief is so massive and overwhelming that that's what you're like marking things by, you know, in a way. So then, so then you like, it's like, you're just kind of teleporting from place to place. Um, in this place or that. And I, I feel like it really, it helps give the poem that, that sense of, of kind of going through life, like consumed by this feeling. Um, but then, and, and then I think the other part of it is, is just the, the rhythmic anaphora, like repetition happening again and again, creates this kind of incantation or and like kind of um i don't know this almost trancey like thing of the poem that that carries it through and gives it a kind of like some of its intensity i think i don't know yeah, I think that's really right. Cause you're you're right. It is this sense of like sort of sleepwalking. I mean, it literally says, I carried on in a semi-coma, dreaming I was awake, avoiding friends and puking, plucking stingers from my face and arms. You know, there is this just suspended sense of indefinite 
huge amounts of time passing and then you just kind of flash into these moments that stick out and i think that is you're right that's what those kinds of montages and movies and tv shows do so well and it also is like an element of what folks describe when there are these kinds of major grief disruptions to life where it's like i don't remember a lot from that year there's like flashes and that's about it because mostly it was just like going through the motions of existence um I don't know if you've been watching the Marvel television series Moon Knight, which is coming out right now on Disney Plus. In Moon Knight, the new series starring Oscar Isaac, it's a character who is inhabited by multiple personalities and is maybe the servant of an ancient Egyptian god, whatever. But like what right. happens in the series is mild-mannered shop assistant Stephen Grant will be running and be like, oh my goodness, I don't know what's going on. I'm Stephen Grant. <laughs> And then it's just like, bop, 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 like little shuddering camera. And then all of a sudden he's like in another country surrounded, like driving a hundred miles an hour down a freeway. And he's like, Oh my God, I'm Stephen Grant. And I didn't know how I got here. This is freaking me out. I'm losing me marbles. I'm Stephen. <laughs> it's just like, bop, 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 bop. and then he's like, now he's on a, he's on a cliff and there's like, bloody henchmen all around he's like oh i didn't do it i'm innocent i'm stephen grant and then later you find out there's another dude in his mind and also he's the servant of this ancient egyptian god whatever um but this other guy's like i'm here to take care of business i'm a mercenary and i'm up to no good or maybe i'm up to good hard to tell is there a third one of us in here we'll never know except we will probably in the next couple episodes the point is, this reminded me very much of that because what it, the way that they've done it in the Moon Knight series is that they tend to show up in these like really intense scenarios where this, you know, bumbling person is just like, yeah, what's going on here? Right. And I get a little bit of that, that at which point gives me that kind of like, ah, oh my God, we're back. Right. You know? And like nothing that shocking is going on but you get the feeling that this person is shocked back into being present in the world at certain points yeah um not by anything particularly like oh my god you know i'm in egypt now how did this happen uh <laughs> it's more like oh you know I was, you know, at which point in the tetric silence that followed i was swarmed by those bees and lost consciousness it's just like I remember this moment where it all became too much or something. Uh, yeah. But the the language and the, particularly the use of the anaphora, you just feel like the, like, it's like really sharp, you know? Yeah. And at which point is kind of a terse words to say, you know, it doesn't feel like it has the kind of connective tissue that, and also, and then. Right. You know, any of that, would feel a little bit more flowy but it's like at which point at which point at which point to end on the point but also at which like it's all quite sonically sharp and it's a slightly odd phrase to use so it also hits the ear a little weird when you're reading through it i think that it's yeah it just giving me those those moon night vibes <laughs> <laughs> oh man no, it's that's really right. I I think um yeah, my favorite my favorite kind of moment of that in the poem um is it's like it toward the middle 
And it's like, at which point coming to, I knew I'd pay the whole flagpole fare, at which point the driver turned and said, it doesn't need to be your fault for it to break you. Yeah. Um, and it's this, it's this great moment where the, the flagpole fair, which is a kind of, um, it, it's an old kind of phrase, it seems, where like with taxis and cabs and stuff, there'd be like a base rate that was kind of called the, the flagpole or something, um, which might be related to the fact that the cabs used to have those little, maybe they still do, little flags that's like, I'm, you know, you put it up when you can take a ride or whatever. Um, but at that point in the poem, I knew I'd pay the whole flagpole fare. Um, it's a kind of, it's just like a, a, a figurative thing, basically, right? It's just like, I'm going to, this is going to cost me, basically. Yeah. Um, it's like the but, minimum amount that your trip will cost. Exactly. Um, and then, but then the next, at which point the driver turned and said, it doesn't need to be your fault for it to break you. And so suddenly in the kind of way you were describing, you know, the, the speaker comes to and is, you know, riding in a cab basically, and like jolted into existence, but it's, it's, it's particularly, um, basically like the first line it's like it, it evokes a kind of figurative taxi um and then the next line the speaker is suddenly in a, what seems to be a real taxi um and so with the driver saying things and stuff and so anyway I, but i i felt like that was such a um i don't know it's just like a, a like beautifully done but also yeah i don't know it's a it's a it's a powerful moment in the poem because it's 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 taking that kind of central element of being jolted from place to place that the at which point is doing um and then it's sort of combining it's it's jumping along with the kind of figurative and literal um in a way that's that's sort of surprising, but then you, you, it's like the poem is bringing you into the cab before the speaker knows you're in the cab kind of in a way with the way that the, the figurative cab image kind of, um, like is before the actual cab, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And you're right. It does allow it to play out kind of in tandem because at first you're thinking, oh, I'd pay the whole if you know what a flagpole fare is or if you look it up. You're like, <laughs> OK, so it's like I'll I'll have to pay what we understand from the poem is probably a pretty extreme amount in this figurative journey that you're on uh, through grief world. And then the literal or figurative driver you know, that does stand in for what I think is a very real experience for a lot of folks, which is like somebody will say something to you that actually ends up being incredibly impactful, whether they know it or not. I mean, they probably intend it that way, but things kind of, you know, hit different, as they say. Um, <laughs> uh, we're like, yeah, the right person saying the right thing at the right time can make a huge difference in how you're thinking about whatever intense grief or change you're going through somebody who's been there can 
help kind of lay out the contours of what's going on or whatever. And it does feel like this is one of those kind of moments and ideas that does feel like it really frames things. And it seems like it's a little bit of a turn in the poem after that. It's not particularly intense, but that does feel like where we move into sort of the, um, like the ending of the poem, not just because it is at the end, but it feels like there's a turn in, in, a, in the tone a little bit there and it becomes even more kind of future looking, um, you know, the vulture bone flute and I grew old, like this, this sense of thinking forward as opposed to being just kind of in these moments. There's still the at which point, but it's at which point I grew old or I conceived of a realm or like a, there's a different kind of thinking going on. So it feels like that statement from the, the driver marks a change for the speaker. I don't know. I haven't totally thought that through, but curious if you have any ideas about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think that's really right. And it, cause it's interesting because the poem like as you were saying, sort of narratively as a play-by-play, -play, it's not like there's a, that much of a plot per se, but there is a kind of sort of development of the processing or the effects of the grief on the speaker, you know, where like, you know, we begin with just this incredible line but like at which point my grief sounds ricocheted outside of language um and then the speaker is like swarmed by bees and then is like knocked out then in a coma um and you know at sort of like through this point in the poem it's not quite clear like what the development is going toward if that makes sense um, but then as you were pointing out, like when the driver says that, that does feel like some, some kind of turn. And then, you know, where we end up in the end, there is a kind of arriving to, even though it's very, um, qualified, I would say, or, or like, I, that's sort of a detached way of describing it, but, um, you know, it's like, at which point I conceived a realm more real than life, at which point there was at least some possibility, some possibility in which I didn't believe of being with her once more. Um, and so you kind of have, you know, like you lose the most important person in your life, your wife, your partner. Um, and, you know, like it's, it's, and then with the title beckoned, it's kind of this sense of like beckoned both like by whom or what, but also like beckoned to what, and like of being with her once more, that's the obvious impossibility that's sort of causing, as you're saying, everyone grieves differently. And so there's so many different dynamics and like ways of processing and, and like that you know, from who the person was in your life to who you are, to like where things were to your own personality or whatever, but like the, yeah, it's, it's at the end, it's like, 
it's like creating a world, right? Like at which point I conceived a realm more real than life. And there's this kind of, how can I, how can I be with her as much as like one can, since you can't actually, it's that, um, when I and think that, yeah, yeah, that more real than life also really struck me because it probably does on some level feel more real to imagine the life you've expected to have, like, particularly when it's an unexpected loss like this, like you thought there was going to be the rest of life. Thinking yeah. about that feels more real than the reality you're stuck in. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and like, and I say, I said like, qualified of course because there's this kind of there's at least some possibility and then it's like some possibility in which i didn't believe of being with her once more which is just kind of like a very like intense but it it, it was it's like a complicated but it, it intuitively makes sense to me where like you're you know the best the speaker can do and that's sort of like why it's so painful i think to read and engage with but like is a possibility of being with this person but not just the pos but you don't even believe that it is you don't believe in the possibility you're just aware of it in a way um and i thought that's kind of like such an interesting um way of putting it because it, it does feel like like also because like your your relationship to them doesn't end in a way you know insofar as like you are a person and you like you know yours they have you know people impact you and that stays with you and like your anyway i'm not really saying this very well but i think like it's like part of it is this adjusting or like finding what can a relationship be with someone who's gone what what can that be um and so like it's getting to this place of a possibility of being with her that you don't believe in in a way um Anyway, there's a there's that's not put too well, but I was just kind of thinking about that and like it's not like when someone passes away, they're gone and then everyone just forgets or or like is like they never had existed in the first place. But it's still such an intense transition and it is a real loss, but there's like you have to there's like a reconciling Right. It's not like the grieving process is not about um, sort of ending one's relationship to the person that's passed. It's like reconfiguring that relationship now that they're gone. I think that makes a lot of sense. And this end part feels sort of in conversation with that and kind of the idea of an afterlife as well. Mm -hmm. You know, not just in reaching out to someone who's departed but i think the last four lines is where i think you if you wanted to you could maybe pull out a hint of a narrative arc in the poem because 
at which point I grew old. Okay, time is passing. Uh, and it was like ripping open the beehive with my hands again. So the imagery of the bees from the beginning, which are kind of this overwhelming grief that embodies the sound of wordless grief and knocks out the speaker at the beginning. Oh, the bees are back. Uh, we're getting overwhelmed by them again because like you're aging and you maybe you thought you'd do that together, but also you're starting to think about your own mortality, at which point I conceived a realm more real than life. That sounds a lot like, you know, I've mentioned earlier that maybe it's that it seemed realer to grow old together than it does to be living through whatever's happening now but also like a realm more real than life sounds very much like heaven or kind of a, a standard afterlife kind of idea where it's like it's like life but good all the time it's the good place <laughs> um, at which point there is at least some possibility some possibility in which i didn't believe of being with her once more a lot of folks take comfort in the idea that like you'll see all your departed loved ones again in the afterlife this idea of an afterlife together in which the speaker doesn't believe but which they're aware is a possibility which becomes more present as time passes by and they they move into the later stages of their life i think you could maybe draw an arc of like this is the form that grief seems to be taking over time into the letter stages of life and i don't believe in an afterlife where we'll be reunited but you know that is also something that i'm aware people think about i guess yeah no i think that's really right um i think that's really right and i think to kind of go back to what your original question is that i don't think i even answered about the at which point the driver turned part like i feel like part of the emotional reckoning like in like that is a kind of it's it's sort of it doesn't need to be your fault for it to break you like you know this particular uh person that's that's been like i think some at least in my own experience with loss and sort of different kinds of changes that are sort of intense like there's often some like idea or like belief or thing that is like keeping me stuck in a particular like emotional space with it that's like preventing me from um processing it in a way um and i think this that in this poem for this person like there's there's a sense that it's like it wasn't my fault but like i'm broken so it like feels like it's my fault yeah. and there's a kind of which i think you know there's um guilt is I mean, I don't know the like actual circumstances, but there's often feelings of guilt when grieving, even when it's not like you, even when it's a total, it has, the reasons are not to do with you at all. Um, yeah. Especially when you're so connected to a person that it's like, you know, did yeah, I, I, did I cause this somehow or could I have prevented it? All that stuff. So anyway, I think like, there's a stuckness that the poem is kind of in um in the beginning and and it's a turning point in a way where like that idea i think 
sort of allows the speaker to go to a new place where they they are able to conceive that realm more real than life of and being like slightly closer to to being with her once more kind of thing <laughs> i like that and answered your question <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean i also have, I have many more questions <laughs> so, oh no i know um i mean the main one is about like not just the bees but like all the different nature stuff that's going on i mean the bees are kind of the literally the loudest but also the most recurring but then there's this vulture bone flute and there's the cranes there's all these different birds um obviously vultures and bones are you know a lot of kind of death related or death adjacent imagery vultures as scavengers and you know all that kind of stuff but um poets love bees <laughs> I mean, they just love bees. Uh, <laughs> they, I mean, we've talked about to make a prairie, which has got bees in it. We talk about where the honey comes from, which has got the bees in it. I, there's probably others that I'm forgetting, but just in on this podcast, we've talked about bees. <laughs> <laughs> and like the, the way the bees enter the poem makes a lot of sense because it's a way to make the sort of ricocheting grief sounds into a, a, a buzzing swarm that can overwhelm uh but yeah i don't know i'm curious about the bees and the cranes and the vultures and all the nature stuff going on throughout yeah yeah no absolutely um well and the other thing too that i kind of that i think kind of helps with the anaphora, which is related to the bees, is like the ways the bees are like, they're like scattered in a way where like, you know, something like a drifting swarm of bees, we get that kind of from the beginning, that's the second line. And then it's swarmed by the bees, okay. But then, you know, um, then like, you know, the speaker's in the semi-coma dreaming and then is like plucking stingers from my face so then the bees come up again where um but then they kind of disappear for a while and then it's like at which point i grew old and it was like ripping open the beehive with my hands again um so it's you know it's it it's kind of the reason why i bring that up too is like like sometimes some poems are are you know describing a particular like real place in time where like there's these people and these things there and like they're there for the whole you know just like a kind of realistic description of a scene or something like that whereas this is much more uh you know a dream grief thing where like the bees are there then they're not there then there's a beehive that somehow was already there or whatever you know um so that's like a, just saying like they're anyway, I think it works for the poem, but it's, it's an interesting kind of way that the images are existing, I guess. Um, I mean, to me, let's see the easy, well, not the easiest, but the vulture bone flute. <laughs> yep. it, and I'm sure you, maybe, you know, more about this than I do, but like some of the oldest flutes, um, I think maybe one of the oldest that's been discovered was that is made was made with a 
with vulture bones. Um, and generally bone flutes are like one of the first instruments that people made, at least as far as we know at this point, um, like, you know, 40,000 years ago or something like that. So one, like in addition to the bones and the vulture, like scavenger aspect, there's also this kind of like this driver playing, you know, like the first and, and it, it being described as without lurching commencement there's this kind of like ancient music like um you know like a funeral song basically is kind of the idea that i'm i'm getting and and the fact that it's this vulture bone flute it makes it feel like the you know the the pain is as ancient as as the instrument itself in a way. Um, and the bees are, yeah, it's gosh. I mean, it, they're just, they're, what I don't know. What are they up to? <laughs> Cause you're right. I mean, the vulture bone flute, like, yeah, that is, you're right. That is a, an actual reference to like the real fact that the oldest known musical instrument is a flute made out of a vulture bone it's like thirty-five thousand years old it's it's a real thing um yeah and i think you're you're very you're exactly right about how that is kind of interplaying with and, and accentuating this this grief <laughs> this grief dream um yeah, yeah what are those bees up to the bees i know um like i guess the thing is that i mean I think that the most basic, like, it's just, it is an image that fits the, the feelings where it's like, um, this kind of painful, like assault of irritation, <laughs> uh, of overwhelming or just being annoying. Like there's a lot yeah. of variety. Yeah, no, and it, and it reminds me of um, the book Be With uh, was um, written about in The New Yorker when it came out, and they say in the review, so in Be With, Gander is at once adamant about the ineffability of grief and committed to getting his inchoate grief sounds somehow into words. Um, the book's sputtering, flinching style with its syntactical dead ends and misconnections feels like both an accommodation to the necessity of language and proof of its inadequacy. Um, and then actually talks about the poem Beckoned as a poem about finding the words. Um, and anyway, I felt like that captured some of what this poem is doing and is about and especially the way the way it begins of like at which point my grief sounds ricocheted outside of language um and and that to me like there's something there's something in when the feeling is is that intense that it like can't be feels like it can't be described the the bees i don't know for some reason <laughs> It made that that feeling 
does just like feel like it can be a bunch of bees just attacking you basically i don't know the the kind of the swarm aspect where it's like not this you know it's not like um like a needle sharply like going into your skin that's like oh this is like the pain and this is where it is and this is why it is it's like i'm just inside of a beehive and like i'm like yeah plucking stingers out of my face but i don't like well it's also like the i i love the fragmented nature of the bee image Mm -hmm. because i think another way to go you're right it could be this like single intense sharp needle point pain or it could be this overwhelming blunt force trauma like kicked in the head by a horse or something knocked out unconscious with grief Whatever. like there's so many different ways to go about describing it um i know i have clumsily written about it on several occasions <laughs> um I, you know it's hard to do but like uh <laughs> yeah and i like that the the poem isn't afraid to also like extend the bee metaphor in certain places so it's not just bees it's not just the swarm of bees you also get plucking the stingers from my face and arms. You also get the hive showing up later. Like the bees aren't just the bees. They're also the whole ecology of bees as a kind of ecology of grief at different points. And you could do that, obviously, with anything. You could figure out the different elements like, oh, it's the horse, it's the horseshoe, it's the hoof, it's the stall, it's the barn, it's whatever. Um, but I feel like the... Yeah, I keep coming back to the bees as plural bees, basically. Like it's the swarm, it's the cumulative effect of all the little things. Um, it's a little bit like uh, Warren Zevon has the song Keep Me in Your Heart for a while. Mm. And one of the, like it sort of gets at this idea, like he wrote it when he was dying, basically. And thinking about like how would somebody remember him and it's like sometimes when you're doing simple things around the house maybe you'll think of me and smile you know i'm tied to you like the buttons on your blouse or something like it's all these little everyday things that are very accurate kind of minor descriptors of all the little ways you notice somebody is no longer around and i feel like the plurality of bees gets at that it's all these different little things yeah no i think that's really right and sometimes um, they can gang up on you and knock you out <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, like, like, it's kind of where things start right it's like yeah they they get together something like a drifting swarm of bees at which point in the tetric silence that followed i was swarmed by those bees and lost consciousness right, yep there you go yeah no absolutely absolutely um and in a way it it feels yeah i don't know just every all the 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 other images too are there's just so many um evocative like phrases and images and just like at which point in the tetric silence that follows and like tetric like i had to look that up but i guess like acids there could be like tetric acids that's not really used that much but it's kind of like bitter basically or like um morose almost or something um but like 
just thinking of a the harshness of a tetric silence um is very i don't know um and then like at which point her voice was pinned to a backdrop of vaporous color um which feels like there's not bees in that but it's like the kind of the the backdrop of vaporous color it feels like the kind of blurry uh and the fact that it they're pinned which which like comes after the stingers i mean it's not the same but like there's a sharp i would i like for a moment i like imagine that the voice is pinned with the bee stingers or something to this backdrop or whatever but there's this that there's a similar kind of blurry antagonism there uh that that you're stuck with um and it's not i don't know and like vaporous backdrop is so yeah anyway um it's like ugh. um and there's there's also like along with that the the I, yeah i was just thinking about how you brought up the at which point um sounds that are so sharp there's a really interesting mix of sharp and non-sharp moments in the sounds i think a little bit where like um there are the moments of at which point which is harsh and there's sort of moments that like are similar where there's the tetric silence and like pluck puking plucking stingers you know for my face and arms but then there are you know um you know it was interesting it reminded me of our our conversation with um michael kleber diggs and the gwendolyn brooks poem sunset in the city and how that poem like is a you know it's not like a formal sonnet so it, it doesn't have like a set rhyme scheme but then there are points that clearly rhyme in a kind of like formal way but it just kind of like goes in and out and i actually noticed that here and i feel like it sort of builds up to it and kind of builds up to the turning point that you that you said where um so i mean there's like at which point i carried on a semi-coma dreaming i was awake avoiding friends and puking plucking stingers from my face and arms and here I'm hearing a little bit with the errs and the arms, a little bit. And then at which point her voice was pinned to a backdrop of vaporous color. And then the R's feel like they're they're coming back again, especially in that vaporous color. Um, and the arms and the color, they're not, they're not rhymes at this point, but they're there's sim some similar sounds. But then at which point the cranes bustles flared which is sonically very interesting because it's so short and this poem has so many long lines and long sentences. And then cranes bustles flared is like, uh, you know, like you have to really slow down to say every syllable at that point, you know, like cranes bustles flared. I mean, the, the bustle has two, but it's like a lot of long sounds crunched um it's also and, just not expected phrasing 
It's so weird. Yeah, especially and, yeah, when you're saying yeah. it out loud. Like, how often do you talk about a crane's bustles? Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, I was looking yeah. it up. They, I guess they have, they have bustles that are like little parts of their feathers, I guess, or something, and they can flare or not. <laughs> yep. Um, like kind of on their wings or whatever. So you can you can kind of see it, but it's like a not seeing that many cranes these days. Um, so it's it's already a kind of, you know, it's not a it's not a bee, it's not a common, it's a more uncommon animal. Then the the bustles is also it's like I don't know that much about crane anatomy, so that's that's the part of part of it. But then also like I do know, I do hear bustle in a different context, you know, like <laughs> I, we're hustling and bustling or whatever. I mean, all a bustle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway. And then, yeah, the, the, obviously the flaring of, of said bustle. So it's, it is very, um, it is, it is kind of a Gwendolyn Brooks, like the, the language is very out of, you know, it's it's not the same tone as twang they but it kind of comes out of nowhere but then so then anyway at which point coming to i knew i'd pay the whole flagpole fare and so then we have a kind almost perfect rhyme in this poem that hasn't had you know any any rhyme scheme at all between flared and fair and it's to the point where sometimes when i read it i I would say I knew I'd pay the whole flagpole flare, partly because flag is also the FL thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that and then that that that's another like whole flagpole fare is like cranes bustled flare in the long, like whole flagpole fare is like four consecutive long syllables, you know, in contrast to like at which point there was no way out for me either, or like avoiding friends and puking, plucking stingers from my face and arms. Like there's a lot, those lines have a lot of syllables that are, you know, um, not, not long and not emphasized. Um, so, so we have this moment where it's like cranes bustled, bustles flared and whole flagpole fair, where you also have the L's in hole and flag and pole. Um, so it's this very like sonically like rich moment. Um, they're also the, the kind of images that they are are like so different, you know, where one's a kind of almost uh, I'm thinking like, a, oh gosh, um, what's the, <laughs> I want to say like Romanesque, but it's like a kind of, uh, <laughs> there's a definite, period in literature where but it cranes bustles flared is very like i don't know it's got a regal vibe and there's like oh for sure for like sure. a trumpeting swans and things like that or and like then a, a fresco or an urn or something yeah yeah like, yeah yeah ah, right yes this is when zeus took the form of the crane and flared his bustles <laughs> yes unsuspecting maiden or whatever right 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 yeah. right no yeah I think that's real um whereas like pull flag pull fair a it's about a taxi but then it's not clearly even about a taxi because it's this kind of antiquated um 
or like anachronistic way of talking about you know taxi charges um i think also just like on a really basic word by word level you're expecting flagpole not flagpole <laughs> what yeah. is a flagpole like it's similar to the crane's bustles in a way where yeah you're just like wait what is this <laughs> what, are you, what is a flagpole as a hyphenated word i've never seen that you know uh, it sounds a lot like flagpole. So when you're saying it out loud, you have to be careful that you're not saying the wrong word that you're half thinking it's going to be, I think. Um, but yeah. And then, yeah, as you said, it's not even a real taxi. What's going on now? <laughs> now we've got this driver. Well, then it is a real taxi before right, it wasn't. Exactly. Yeah. It, you know, it wasn't, and it is, but, but was it, but is it, I don't know. It's true. It's true. <laughs> no, you're right. Um, but they do kind of build, but then it is like, it's just interesting You know, that you were like this point when the driver is saying this thing that does feel like a big kind of like a turning point in the poem. And um, I actually, I like, I hadn't made that connection, but I was like, oh, it's really interesting that there's all this kind of rhyming and sonic sort of concentration or whatever um right before that kind of turning point um and it, it just it feels a little bit like we're being you know like part of the part of the use of of you know rhythm and and musical languages is for the aesthetic beauty of it but the other it also i think of it often as a way to guide attention and focus where, and in that way it, it's, it's connected to how, you know, it's not like fair, the air sound by itself is always having to do with, you know, this kind of turn in a poem. It's like, it's just the, the patterns of which it's a part of and the fact that it then builds to this kind of is, I think our ears, you know, it's, it's like, uh, the, when dogs, they hear a sound and their ears go, Broop. Like, oh. <laughs> like, what was that? Is that squirrel? Can you kill a squirrel? I don't know. I, I feel like <laughs> the, this poem is so like, it's, it's making our own ears perk up like right as the like big, I think, turning point in the poem is about to start. I think that's that's pretty cool. And we say to ourselves, ooh, is that a squirrel? And the poem goes, <laughs> no, it's a bee and a vulture bone flute. What did you think it was? <laughs> well, that was one early problem they had uh, back in the day with the vulture bone flutes is the dogs just thought it was a, just a nice a bone for them. And then they... They get their oh, no. teeth stuck in the flute's uh, keys, and yeah, it was really. This yeah. is why so few have been found because the dogs ate them all. Exactly. Dog ate my vulture bone flute. <laughs> That's what uh, you know prehistoric students used to say on vulture bone flute making day at cave school. They were like, "Everybody, bring in your flute!" Like the dog took it. It's a bone. What did you think he was going to do? Started off as a real complaint, and then turned into just an all-purpose excuse. Yep. Yep. As Pleistocene kids had it rough. I 
think that we should read it again. I agree. This is the poem Beckoned by Forrest Gander. At which point my grief sounds ricocheted outside of language. Something like a drifting swarm of bees. At which point in the tetric silence that followed, I was swarmed by those bees and lost consciousness. At which point there was no way out for me either. At which point I carried on in a semi-coma, dreaming I was awake, avoiding friends and puking, plucking stingers from my face and arms. At which point her voice was pinned to a backdrop of vaporous color. At which point the crane's bustles flared. At which point coming to, I knew I'd pay the whole flagpole fare. At which point the driver turned and said, it doesn't need to be your fault for it to break you. At which point, without any lurching commencement, he began to play a vulture bone flute. At which point I grew old, and it was like ripping open the beehive with my hands again. At which point I conceived a realm more real than life. At which point there was at least some possibility, some possibility, in which I didn't believe, of being with her once more. Yeah, I got a question for you, Connor. I got a real, real humdinger of a cue over here. <laughs> yeah. You better strap in and prepare yourself because this is a question like none you've ever heard before. I have no anticipations. I don't know what it's going to be. What are you going to ask me? Yeah, well, I'm going to ask you what you've been reading, what you've been listening to, what you've been watching, what's going on, what do you got to recommend? Oh, I, I tricked you. It's a question you've heard it. many times before, and I ask oh. you every episode. Same question every time. What's, what's going on? What's up in Connerland? What's happening? Oh, my gosh. I discovered a new podcast. Which is very exciting for me. Um, and I would like to recommend it. It's called Movement Memos by with um hosted by kelly hayes uh and it's like through truth out which is the kind of sort of like lefty movement activist publication that's really good um and kelly hayes is a um activist and writer and um she's yeah she's menominee and then um she's done a lot of work that I don't even know, but um, uh, it's, I think maybe based in Chicago too. Anyway, it's, it's a lot of great sort of interviews um, with different people. And there's the most recent one as of April 17th is one with Ruth Wilson Gilmore, uh, who's a great sort of prison abolitionist geographer um, and is coming out with um, a book that I'm excited to read, a collection of essays called Abolition Geography. And it's a, this, this interview that she does with, with Gilmore is really amazing. Um, and it's, it's interesting 
one of the ideas that they talk about is how the gosh it's it's almost a, so abstract but it's like abstract to the point of being the least abstract which is to say it's like people's lives are like space time and because you're like you're in a body and that is in space and you have your time and what prisons do and other kinds of like extractive things like that is basically take away people's space time. Um, another way of saying that, which she says is like, it causes premature death. And that's sort of the kind of the ways that Ruth Wilson Gilmore thinks about sort of the function of it, which I think is, it's rather than kind of a, you know, an ugly consequence of something that's trying to do something else. Um, but then she also talks about how, and I need to like re-listen to it because it's kind of profound, but she sort of talks about it in a, a sense of space time. And then also is this interview is inter interesting because it's also thinking about all that in connection to the climate crisis and how that is kind of a global extraction of space time from people because it's basically it's it's like when greta thunberg is like you're destroying our future basically right, and that yeah. which is like what's happening um but anyway it's really interesting and and i've listened to a few other episodes and they're also really good so i i highly recommend movement memos with with kelly hayes that sounds really cool yeah, yeah, I can't wait to listen to that uh, that interview. I know you've mentioned it before, but obviously uh, follow the Twitter account, Ruth Wilson Gilmore Girls, which is yes. just Ruth Wilson Gilmore quotes on screenshots from Gilmore Girls. It's great stuff. It's so good. Yeah, no, it's really good. It's really, really good. Um, okay, Jack, I'll just cut all the shenanigans and I ask yeah. you. Uh -huh. what, I mean, what, what have you been doing anyway? reading well, listening to <laughs> what have you been doing anyway watching i mean what's your problem yeah <laughs> uh, what's your malfunction dude um yeah so <laughs> i watched the two-part documentary on netflix jimmy savile a british horror story uh for anybody listening who's not familiar jimmy savile was for like 50 years a beloved tv presence and radio presenter dj yeah, spent most of his career also being a pedophile, and that came to light shortly after his death, but it was one of those things that was like kind of an open secret for folks in the biz, and there was this whole narrative of like, what's this guy up to? I don't know, there's something off about him. And so what the documentary does a really good job of is basically in the two parts, both of which are feature length, the first one is pretty much just the story of Jimmy Savile's career. And everybody who goes into watching this documentary knows how bad he is, but it doesn't focus on any of the accusations. It just tells the story of his career and it acknowledges moments where it's like, this was a little off. This was odd. I worked with him and I didn't understand this, that, or the other thing, but particularly for an American audience that maybe heard of him first through all the pedophilia, 
this is the part where it kind of tells you the cultural context. Uh, but the point is because it does that and it's in these two parts, like it does a really, really good job of, it never like downplays or tries to tell the story as though like no one knew. And here's just like, here's this amazingly talented, whatever. It's like, no, like, you know what the problem is going into it. Cause you're probably aware of what it is. It's called a horror story, but because it traces that history first, it does a really, a really good job of making it so that when you do get to the the second part and you do hear like some firsthand accounts from survivors and all this stuff and like just hundreds of people over decades of public life because uh. he just volunteered kind of out of nowhere on the back of his celebrity as like an orderly at hospitals oh my god and he would just like take patients off and and like molest them and stuff it's really awful stuff yes. um so definitely a content warning for that and there is there are content warnings on the piece itself and there's information about like where to get help if you have are experiencing or have experienced anything like what is described in it and there's some pretty graphic stuff discussed in it um but it's just like it's a really well-made telling of uh, a story that i think has a lot of lessons um about you know the things that get overlooked because somebody's famous or powerful or whatever um Wow. which I think we, we see in ways large and small all the time. Uh, so yeah, Jimmy Savile, a British horror story on Netflix on a happier note. And I have been very excited to tell you about this. And I'm curious if you already know about this band that I discovered uh, called Cannons. Whoa, no. You know, okay. Well, <laughs> all right. Let me tell you. Uh, I like them. <laughs> so I, I discovered them purely by happenstance. The uh, a song of theirs was suggested to me on YouTube, uh, like the music video, uh, a song which remains, I think, my favorite song of theirs, but I've now listened to a bunch more. And they are just like a very cool kind of, uh, I, there's no better way to say it than like vibey band. They've got a really kind of like, retro-ish synthy-esque pop vibe like kind of low-key really cool um so this is a little bit of the song hurricane and also like their video just has a great aesthetic so this is hurricane oh yeah yeah right so it's just like really cool and it's just kind of going along and it feels good but my favorite part about this song is the way the chorus comes in because it doesn't get like loud or anything but like mm -hmm. check this out here it goes Yeah. Right. Okay. So like what I love particularly where the chorus comes in is like all that really happens is like a shaker comes in and it's going at double time. So it's like, right. but the whole feeling of it changes and it's just got like a great, pretty sparse instrumentation. You can hear all the different parts, but they come together to just make it like, 
Hurricane. Yeah, so they've got a bunch of great songs. I believe they have a new album. This this song is from their new album that's just coming out. But I I recommend just checking out all their stuff. Um, they did do a cover of a Bruce Springsteen song. I later discovered "Dancing in the Dark." Uh, it's all right. Uh, <laughs> it's not my favorite song of his. It's not <laughs> like a, an amazing cover, but it is like. Hey, did you want a cover of this song that is very vibey? Here you go. They got you covered. Cannons. Vibin' in the dark. Vibin' in the dark. Oh, man. Yes, exactly. Vibin' in the dark. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossiter Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time. Mm-hmm.